Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel. And he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain, I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For Sean 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell. I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face. I mean, just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face. Probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem. And she would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mon. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight is we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible and lays on the pulpit, it's a reminder. He used to be laying down lines of cocaine. He used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle. He used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife. Praise the Lord. God created him and ordained him to walk in good works. It's a reminder, Christian. I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. For giving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two, by surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose. 
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. In chapter number five tonight. I want to mention uh, something to you, and I'll probably announce this uh, again and talk about it, uh, but I want to mention it to you tonight because those of you here tonight can actually see it in person. Uh, we were doing, uh, Brother Colton did a phenomenal job relettering our church fan. How many of you have seen that? It looks great. looks awesome. Uh, but uh, they, the vinyl company or the printing company we use a lot had a little bit of a misunderstanding, and they misprinted something for us and the QR code, and so we had them redo it, so we had the one that wasn't the way we wanted it. The QR code was right, it just wasn't done the way we wanted it. 
And so yesterday we had a, a brilliant idea. We put it on the back of my little Ford Festiva. And I thought to myself, with Colton and I talked about it yesterday, I wonder how many thousands of people are going to see that and go, man, I've got to know what that does. I've got to know where it goes. And I shared it with several folks. I think it's a great idea. Uh, shared it with Brother Maud last night. He's like, I want one. Get me one. I want to put one on my car. Uh, we're going to uh, get a find out. I talked to Brother Colton today. We're going to find out uh, how much it would cost if we got several of them. And if you'd like to take a look and see what it looks like on our church van, that's what we're going to get. But you can also see my beautiful little blue car out there. <laughs> see the mistake one that we put on as well. But I, when I was a kid, I loved to go fishing. And I remember one night I was fishing, and I think we were allowed to have two fishing poles in the water. And I had two fishing poles, and my dad had two fishing poles. But how many of you know the more fish, more hooks you have in the water, the more fish you catch? You know that? So I decided by the Bonnie that I was going to just tie a line out with a hook and tie it to a tree. I figured that doesn't count as a fishing pole. I'm not sure how the government would have looked upon it, but I, no one was coming to check on me anyway. So I tossed it out. And that night on that fishing line tied to a tree, I caught a fish called a bowfin, a very, very, very rare fish in the state of West Virginia, uh, a fish that caused me to be able to get a uh, citation I sent in, and they gave me this citation for catching this fish. And I caught that fish because I had extra hooks in the water. Now, I like the idea of getting lots of hooks in the water when it comes to getting the gospel out. So just a thought there. I thought I'd mention that tonight. Acts chapter 5, verse 17 through 39. By the way, if the West Virginia Department of Natural Resources comes after me, I hope the church will protect me. Uh, we're going to talk about seven lessons for Christian workers and by the way, can I tell you who Christian workers are? Every Christian. Every Christian. We're all to be Christian workers. Uh, we're going to look at verse 17 to 39. Kind of a, uh, not a, a very long passage of Scripture. Probably one full page in your Bible. But follow along with me as I read, starting here in verse 17. And the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning, and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one of them and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple." And teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. 
Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law and in reputation among the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up uh, Thudius, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who were slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and Drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God's, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found even to fight against God. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the opportunity to open this book and teach tonight. Lord, we find some lessons here tonight that are encouraging to me. Some lessons that are common knowledge for most of us as believers. But Lord, I believe so often we need a strong reminder. Lord, I love what you allowed us to see here in your, your book. Lord, as we see you, we see your power. We see you receiving glory. We see you changing lives here in the book of Acts. We see you as the gospel. Lord, help us to see that tonight. Help us to be encouraged and challenged and changed by your word. Lord, would you drive home these points, these thoughts to our minds tonight. Help us, Lord. Help me for you to write your truth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. There's a little word we find in the book of Acts in the passages we've already looked at, a word that's used several times. That word is filled, filled. We see Acts chapter 4, 31, Acts chapter 5, 17, Acts chapter 5, verse 28, that they had filled, filled Jerusalem with the doctrine. How wonderful it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But how horrible it is to be filled, to be filled with Satan's plans and Satan's purposes. And we see that there was a real battle going on here. There was a battle between those who were filled with the Spirit of God and the devil himself, I believe, was doing battle here in Jerusalem. How dangerous it is to take lightly the work of the devil. How dangerous it is to mock at uh, the devil. I had a planer, a jointer planer years ago. When I bought that jointer planer, I had it at my parents' home in West Virginia. And I turned it on in the garage. And my dad said to me, did you hear that? And yeah, I heard it. That's what it sounded like. It was really loud. And I'm like, 
what? He said, you know what it's saying? I said, what? Dad said, you know what it's saying? It's saying, I want to eat your fingers. I want to eat your fingers. I want to eat your fingers. They're, they're a dangerous piece of equipment. Miraculously, I have all my fingers because I sold it many years ago. Otherwise, I'd have no fingers left. But it's if you take it lightly, if you're not careful, if, if you try to push a board through without the pushers and using your fingers, that's how you get the nickname Stumpy because it will take your fingers off. It's a dangerous piece of equipment. You have to understand the power and the danger of it. We need to understand that not only is God working, but the devil is working. And as we begin this thought of these lessons tonight, number one, the first lesson is the devil will also be at work when God is at work. The devil will also be at work whenever God is at work. Mark it down. Anytime that God is working, the devil is going to be working. The devil is never going to stop. I think it was Brother Ahmad told me the story of, uh, was it Charles Stanley? Who was it made the comment? Someone called him one day and said, uh, uh, are you busy? And I need to talk to you. And I believe it was Charles Stanley said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I'm taking the day off. Today's my day off. And he was spending time with his daughter, I believe it was. And the person on the other end said, well, the devil never takes a day off. And Charles Stanley said, well, would you like me to be like the devil? Now, a lot of times we are like the devil, but that is one way that we aren't like him. The devil truly is always working. Uh, he's always trying to work against God. Now, what amazes me is the devil has read the last chapter. Now, he doesn't know the future other than what is in the Word of God. Uh, the devil is not... Uh, all-knowing, but he, can, he knows what's in here. He knows what it says, and yet still he's fighting. Still he's working. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were, notice this, filled. There's that word, filled. Not with the Spirit. Filled with indignation. Filled with anger, filled with violence. They, as, as God's people were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were filled truly with the devil as they were fighting against. A great work of God was going on here. Matter of fact, dare I say, the great work of God was going on in Jerusalem. And Christian, how wonderful it is that we can be involved in the great work of God still today. But the great work of God was going on here in Jerusalem. The devil was fighting against them. Uh, we need grace to deal with that. But praise the Lord. Can I tell you the Bible is true in Romans 8 verse 37 when it says we are more than conquerors. Praise God for that. More than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but but more than conquerors. The Bible is still true in the book of James when it says resist Satan and he'll flee from us. Resist the devil, he'll flee from us. We have the power of God, but be aware, we need to be reminded that whenever we are working for God, with God, and that's a powerful thing, 
when the work of God is happening, the devil is also working. Years ago, I remember taking him to the Pete Newfeld, the first time he ever went hunting. He had an amazing hunting trip. You know, we call it hunting, not killing, because normally you go hunting and you come back with nothing. Uh, Brother Maude took his little uh, grandson out hunting the other day, and they were out for eight hours. And his grandson said to Ahmad, uh, Grandpa, we've been out eight hours. We got nothing. Pastor Rice killed a moose. Uh, he kept bringing up, Pastor Rice killed a moose. We've been out eight hours. We've got nothing. That's because it's called hunting, not killing. Kind of like when you go fishing and you catch nothing. It's called fishing. I like when I go catching, but sometimes I go fishing. Now, understand that we are to be working for the Lord. We're to be serving the Lord, and we're to be honoring the Lord. And as we see the work of God, as we see God working, as we see God going forward, we need to be reminded that the devil's working. As I mentioned, I took Pete hunting, and that day he had an amazing day. He shot two deer that day. He missed a chance at killing an enormous black bear. He killed a grouse and a squirrel and a unicorn and a giraffe and all kinds of stuff. But I'll never forget as we're walking along, and he shot a squirrel. And we ate the squirrel. We didn't just kill it. We killed it to eat it. And he shot this squirrel, and he was all excited about the squirrel. And the squirrel hit the ground, and we got the squirrel, and we walked about 20 feet farther. And as we walked about 20 feet farther down this trail, one of the biggest black bear I've ever seen in my life was walking straight at us. Now, can I tell you why that black bear was walking straight at us? It wasn't because we smelled good. It wasn't, he knew we were there. When he saw us, he was not afraid. He was walking right at us because he heard the, and he was big enough, he went, there's going to be food. He was coming to find the scraps or to take whatever we had killed. And I looked at Pete and I said, something like that. And I watched as Pete pulled his gun up and I watched as he's trying to pull the trigger and he's trying to pull the trigger and trying to pull the trigger and finally he realized the safety was on and he never killed the bear. And praise the Lord, just in case you're wondering, the bear did not kill us. It finally took off. But that bear came because of the shot. Because we were hunting, and that bear said, hey, those hunters might be successful. I'm going to go do some hunting with them. I'm going to come help them eat what they got. The devil is always listening, always watching. When God is truly at work, the devil's also working. Number two, it's always safe. It's always safe to trust God when doing his will. Don't miss that. It's always safe to trust God when doing his will. Can I tell you the safest place you can be is right in the center of God's will. Safest place we can be. Verse 18 and 19. The Bible says they laid their hands on the apostles, put them into the common prison. I mean, that, that's pretty bad. But I praise God verse 19 exists. It says, but the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. We may be put in prison. 
I'll never forget Elizabeth calling me almost every Sunday during the COVID fiasco. And her question every Sunday was, Dad, are you okay? You're not in jail, are you? Uh, you might remember we, we put preachers in jail in Alberta. Remember that? And by the way, just in case you haven't followed it, all of those charges, all, completely all, were completely dropped. I believe it was last week, both of those men. But she was like, are you okay? Are you in jail? Now, most of us don't worry about going to jail for our faith, but we may have to. By the way, just because we don't worry about that doesn't mean that there aren't many, many, many hundreds of thousands of Christians around the world that every week could be their last. But we may go to jail. We may suffer persecution. But we can trust them. Just as God sent the angel for Peter, in Acts 12, we see that God sent the angel there. I read the story of a missionary who was threatened by a gunman, of course. You know, we know the horrible story from last year, a dear brother in the Middle East whose life was taken. But I read a story of another missionary who was being threatened by an armed man, a gunman, years ago. And it's recorded, those that were part of the when it happened, that the missionary looked at the gunman and said these words, You cannot fire that shot until the God that I serve gives you permission. So that's awfully bold. No, that's true. That's true. The safest place in all the world is the middle of God's will. Amen. Now, does that mean that I'm never going to suffer persecution, that I'm not going to die? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means the safest place, the best place I can be. I can trust the Lord. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego... Those three Huber children, can I tell you the safest place was in that fiery furnace? Can I tell you why that was a safe place? Because there was a fourth man likened unto the Son of God. They weren't alone. They were with the Son of God himself in the midst of that fire. We can trust the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, we'll have time to look tonight, but reminds us, very vividly, it's always safe to trust the Lord. Paul and Silas proved it. All throughout the book of Acts, all throughout the New Testament, we're reminded of the safety of being in God's hand. The New Testament says that we're in His hand and He's in the Father's and no man can pluck us out of His hand. That's pretty safe. That's pretty safe. That's ultimately safe. I always, always, always safe to trust God when I'm doing His will. Number three, verse 19 through 21. Look there with me, verse 19. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought forth and said, Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people. All the words of this life, and when they heard that, they entered the temple. Number three, we may still believe and rejoice in the ministry of angels. Notice I didn't say the worshiping of angels. God help the false religions that try to worship angels. You look in the Bible, anytime a man tried to bow down to an angel, the angel lifted him up and said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't do that. Angels are God's messengers. Angels are the messengers of God. Can I tell you that God didn't lay them off? 
So oftentimes we, we read the Bible and we read about angels. Oh, yeah, the, the angels used to be around. Now, you know, I don't know where they are now. God must have fired them. They must be in an re angel retirement home. They're all on angel cruise ships. No, can I tell you that God still has his messengers, his angels? The angels have a wonderful ministry entrusted to them, but can I, I believe this as much as I believe anything in all the world. Although the angels await God's orders, although they carry the messages of God, they are not and have never been charged with the work of preaching the gospel. I personally believe that the angels of heaven look at you and I today and say, man, I wish I could do that. God's never allowed them to do that. But you and I have that calling. We have that commission to preach Christ, to preach the gospel. We do see in the book of Hebrews, it speaks, Hebrews 1.14, of ministering spirits. We read in the Old Testament of the angels as they ministered, as they ministered to God's servants. We read of the ministering here to these men who were faithful to God. And Christian, can I tell you that Although that we do not worship angels, although they are not the ones that proclaim the truth, that God, I believe, still uses his angels as ministering spirits for you and I today. I have been told that when I get to heaven, that there is probably an entire hospital wing in heaven of guardian angels that God gave to me one after the other that keep getting killed. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do believe uh, that God's uh, angels are still very much doing the will of God today. Number four. And this, is, this is so simple. Look at verse 29. It's so simple. It's something we know already, but we need to be reminded of it. We should obey God rather than men. Verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. I mean, it's very plain. The ultimate authority is God. There's nobody above Him. Nobody can supersede God. Nobody can change God's message. By the way, if we try to change God's message, uh, God says, I'll take your part out of the book. We can't change it. He's the ultimate authority. We ought to obey Him. How bold Peter was. How bold James and John, the other disciples. Why? They'd been commissioned. They'd got the message, hey, go to the temple. Go, but, 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 but we're just in prison. Go to the temple and tell them all the words of life. Where did they go? Right to the temple. They were told, don't ever come back here. They were told, don't preach here again. They were told, we don't want to hear your words again. But they obey God rather than men. I wish we had a little bit of that courage, that tenacity, that concern for the loss, that drive to say, I'm going to do what God says. I'm just going to obey God. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. If we just grab a hold of that it would change so many things in our life it would totally transform our priorities 
It would totally transform our attitudes. It would totally transform the decisions of every moment of every day. Number five. And I, bear with me just a bit. I'm going to make a statement here. This it may sound like heresy. I promise you it's not. I promise you we're going to get to, you'll understand it in a moment. But let me, let me make the statement first. God gives the Holy Spirit, number five, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. To those who obey him. I want you to look at verse 32. Verse 32 of our text. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given them that obey him. I want to make two statements about this so we understand the, the teaching here, verse 32. When an unbeliever, a lost person, by the way, there's only two classes of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. That's it. There's, there's not good and bad. We're all bad. We're all sinners. Either believers or unbelievers. When an unbeliever repents of his unbelief, whatever that is, by the way, it could be hanging on to religion. It could be, you name it, you could put whatever you want in there. When an unbeliever repents of his unbelief and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives him the Holy Spirit. In other words, and get this statement, when we obey the gospel, the Holy Spirit's given to us. Look at verse 37. Verse, I'm sorry, chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2, verse 37 to 39. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. When an unbeliever calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they, uh, when they believe, excuse, when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are given the Holy Spirit. No question about that. So every person who believes is given the Holy Spirit of God. The second part of that thought, when believers, I said, first of all, when a lost person, an unbeliever, repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives him the Holy Spirit because they're, they're believing the gospel. They're obeying the gospel as we see written in the New Testament. But the second part of that, when a believer surrenders to the Lord in complete obedience, the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us. I am indwelled. We talked about this already. The moment I got saved, that I believed I was indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. He never leaves us, nor never forsakes us. But so often, I want to have control. I want to fill my life. And so often, I try to keep him from leading me the way he would like to lead me, like my dog, Cinnamon, who passed away a few years ago, if you put her on a leash and she went off, she would, the whole time she was on a leash, she would try choking herself. <laughs> she kept pulling away. Even though she wanted to go the same way we were going, she would just fight it all the time. 
Christian, we're like that with the Holy Spirit so often. The measure in which God can fill us and empower us, and get this thought, the measure, the amount to which God can fill us, the amount to which God can empower us with the Holy Spirit depends on the extent of our obedience. 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 So understand, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. When we obey the gospel, I said, we receive the Holy Spirit. When we obey the leading of the Spirit, God fills us and leads us even more. Number six tonight, to be effective witnesses for the Lord of glory. By the way, I, I hope that's your goal. I hope you want to be an effective witness. To be an effective witness for the Lord of glory, we must know the partnership of the Holy Spirit. To be effective. To be truly effective. We must know the partnership of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32 of our text. And we are His witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. Here, Peter said, we're His witnesses of these things. But we're not the only witness. We're not the only one here that's witnessing what God's doing. The Holy Ghost is also a witness. It's a great lesson of the book of Acts. A witness. What is a witness? Who is a witness? A witness is someone who shows forth Christ. Acts chapter 1-8, ye shall be witnesses unto me. A witness is someone who shows forth Christ and talks about him. A witness is, is a demonstrator of Christ, a sample of the grace of God, a living human illustration of what God can do with a man and woman. We must surrender to the Lord, all we are. But I don't do that alone. We have the Holy Spirit that we can partner with. He said, I'll... I'll not leave you comfortless. <coughs> he gave us his power. In Acts chapter 1-8, ye shall be witnesses unto me. That was only after we were given the Holy Spirit. We were never given command to go without. A matter of fact, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he looked at those men who, who learned how to work. They learned how to travel with Christ and to serve and, and, and to go forth in, in, a, in a difficult era already. And Jesus didn't say, hey, you go and speak for me. That's not what he said. He said, I want you to go and I want you to wait. Wait for the promise. He didn't say, hey, get the gospel all around the world right now. He said, first of all, I want you to go to Jerusalem and you wait for the promise. Why? Because Jesus wanted them to be able to go with the power of the Holy Spirit. How much more effective? How much more effective? Josh has a couple of beautiful axes. He... Uh, 
But if I don't ever break into Josh's house, I, I would not recommend breaking into Josh's house. You probably have three, three axes and one broadsword within arm's reach at all times at Josh's. It's a dangerous place to break into. Uh, probably, probably mortars and C4 explosives, and that's just for Becca. But no, he's got some beautiful axes. And I've watched him use an axe. He's good with an axe. He grew up, you know, splitting firewood and cutting firewood as a boy. Their home, they heated just with, with wood. But he'll tell you that no matter how good that axe, no matter how sharp it is, no matter how strong the man and technical the man that swings the axe, you pit him with his axe against somebody with a chainsaw. And he may be good with that axe, but I give Brother Jeff a piece of junk chainsaw. Brother Jeff is going to outcut him. That's just all there is to it. I mean, that chainsaw makes all the difference in all the world. It makes all the difference in all the world when we realize that we are effective when we have the Holy Spirit of God. More of a difference than an axe and a chainsaw. It's night and day. Because we have He who is perfect, He who is holy, He who is supernatural, speaking and convicting. You and I can't convict hearts. By the way, that's not your job. Not my job. My job is to proclaim truth. That's all I can do. That's all you can do. But the Holy Spirit's job is the job of convicting, the job of drawing. And we must know that partnership of the Holy Spirit if we're to be effective witnesses for the Lord, how wonderful that is. Number seven, lastly tonight, When God initiates a work or starts a work, He will prosper it and complete it. It cannot be overthrown. I love verse 38 and 39. I want you to see it again with me. And we see here the, some wise words from Gamaliel, a doctor of the law. If you will, we have a lawyer here speaking, a very wise lawyer giving good counsel, very good counsel. In verse 38, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. Gamaliel said, hey, fellas, I know you're all concerned about this Peter and James and John and these men. I know you're all worked up about it. But let me tell you this, if, if what they're doing is just of man, you don't need to stop because it's going to stop. It, it's it's going it's to fall away. It's not going to last. It's going it's to blow apart. It'll come to naught, the Bible word. Verse 39 but if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. And notice this phrase, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Christian, I can't tell you how much of a comfort those verses bring to me. It reminds me that what God starts, God's going to finish. Reminds me that God is the one who's going to bless what he started. 
He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We, we see the perpetuity of the church. We see the perpetuity of the work of God. Now, there are many today, and I'm sure if you search the interwebs long enough, you could find a group of people that would say, oh, the church, the church, granted they don't know what the definition of a church is, and they said, oh, the church is, is dying. Or maybe they would more properly use the term churches are dying. Churches are failing. They, they won't last much longer. I heard just last year a report that uh, a humanist just said, no, there won't be, they said, I can't remember how many years until there'll be no churches left. The churches are going to be defunct. They're going to disappear. They're going to go the way of the dodo bird. That's pretty stupid. As they look to heaven and say, I'll fight you, God. I don't believe in you, but I'll fight you. That's the mad atheist. Boy, I hate God. I don't believe in him, but I hate him. Imagine thinking, I'm going to fight God. I'm going to stop you, God. No, you're not. The devil thought he was going to stop Christ. The devil saw that last breath of our Lord as he heaved on the cross of Calvary. As he gave up the ghost. The devil watched as the soldiers pierced his side and out would run water and blood. The devils watched as they took that body and wrapped it and laid it in a tomb for he was dead. Three days and three nights the devil must have thought. I stopped him. I stopped him. Can I tell you, he could not stop that tomb from opening up. He could not stop the Lord from raising from that grave. And he cannot stop the work of my God. He'll keep working. He's going to keep working. But he's never going to stop it. He's never going to stop it. The Lord, the work of the Lord will not finish. He's the builder. All will be well. Once you see two verses, we'll close with. Look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus speaking here, and I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. By the way, Peter wasn't the rock. Peter was the pebble. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Look at the rest of the verse. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's the one who's building his church. Let's close with Philippians chapter 1. I love the book of Philippians Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident. Confident. No question about it. Being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you. Will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's not going to stop. He's not going to... Walk away from his work. He's going to finish it. 
He's going to complete it. Now, with that in mind, it means I can trust him. It also means that the weight of the work of God is not on me. It's not on you. It's on him. I praise God that he counts us worthy to be in his work and his ministry and laboring with him. But it's still his work. He allows us to labor with him. But he is going to continue to carry it. It cannot be overthrown. As we look in the book of Acts, as we see the gospel starting to go forth. I praise God the gospel hasn't stopped. I'm not, I'm not here tonight to tell you that I believe that it's as vibrantly going forth as it ought to be. I, I don't think that we're doing as much as we should be doing here. I don't believe as far as a whole in the world that where the gospel is going forth as much as God wants it to. But it ain't ever going to stop. It's never going to stop. Why? Because God started the work. God's going to prosper the work. God's going to complete the work. One day, I'm going to hear those words, come up hither. And I'm coming out of this place. I'm not going to say, oh, hey, God, I'm... Awkward, but I got some plans, God. I, you know, give me a little bit. No. Oh, well, I'm not quite ready. No, when I hear those words come up hither, I'm gone. You're gone. God is going to judge this world. But until those words come up hither, and even afterwards, his work is going to continue, the work of judgment and righteousness and holiness. Let's pray together tonight. Lord, help us to receive these truths, these thoughts,